my name is John. If I've never met you before, um, I would love to after service. I'm an associate pastor here at Chi Alpha, and it will be my joy to bring the word of God. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's go. So tonight, I'm going to begin by telling you a quick story. So earlier this year, Pastor Derek asked Pastor Victor and John Kruger and me if we would help him move a refrigerator. And of course, my response was, well, I am the most muscle that free lunch can buy, so of course. And so we loaded up in his Honda Civic and we uh, departed to Cogden, Iowa. And I know that all of you know exactly where that is, because I didn't. But on the way there, we were really excited to show how big our muscles were, um, and we were generally ready for an uneventful move of a refrigerator, because after all, we were four young, strapping lads in the prime of our physical existence, as you can clearly see. And so when we finally got to this house, Derek pulled into the driveway, because after all, it was just their front lawn. Um, and we waited until Dan and Becky got there, who are Derek's parents by the way, if you didn't know. And then when Becky gets there, she fearlessly runs into the front door, no knock or anything. She just immediately swings it open and announces her presence to the cat waiting in the, in the entrance. And the rest of us just follow through as if it was just normal to walk into a stranger's house. Um, and closely followed is Derek and then me. And we walk up to the owner of the house. Her name is, let's say, Barbara. And Derek hands the payment to her and asks, where do we go? And we're off on our adventure. Connected to the kitchen of Barbara's house was a bedroom where the refrigerator that he's buying resided. Um, and our first attempt to fit this refrigerator through the doorway proved, un proved to be unsuccessful because the doorway was far too narrow for the fridge. So with the fridge jammed in the kitchen door, we attempted to take the doors off the fridge, and we did get one of them off but the other one had an ice maker in it, so we couldn't get it all the way out of the door. So with frustration mounting, especially by Barbara, trying to sell us this fridge, it seemed that her husband, who we will call Bill, short for Billy Bob, <laughs> has all of a sudden materialized into the house, out of thin air. I have no clue where he came from. And he informs us that he didn't have to take anything apart on the fridge, nor in the house, in order to get the fridge through the doorway. So now it's John, Victor, and I, all trapped in this bedroom with a doorway in the middle. And Billy Bob's instruction to us, well, just push it. <laughs> I stopped participating in the pushing because this cheaply made, mostly plastic refrigerator was, showing to, was starting to show signs of major abuse. And at the next available moment, John and I squeezed through that door to get out, and Victor was not fast enough because the Red Sea of Billy Bob had joined him in the room. So this is when things really started to take a turn for the worse. Derek was watching anxiously as the fridge that he just paid for started to crack and bend and dent, and Victor and Robert are attempting to wrestle it out of the doorway. And then this happens. Barbara starts to not so gently direct Bill and how to remove the fridge from the doorway. In fact, there's an exchange of ideas, and soon comes all kinds of curse words. I can see the sheer panic in Derek's eyes as he watches his newly purchased fridge get dinked and dented the whole way. And at some point, 
I catch a glimpse, a glimpse of Victor peering at us through, with fear in his eyes of the bedroom. And Dan, Derek's dad, says, let's just leave him and go. <laughs> After several more minutes and curse words, Billy grabs some tools and starts demolishing the door jam of the bedroom. He literally starts dismantling his own house so that Derek can get this fridge. And at this point, John and I had basically given up all hope of helping at all. The odds of us getting the fridge out of this doorway without permanently damaging it were shrinking by the second. And at one point, I think I say, I don't think we're getting this fridge out of here. And Barbara is yanking on the fridge. She stops, turns around with the biggest scowl and goes, oh, you're taking this fridge. I've never been more scared in my life. And at this point, Derek has had just about enough. He thinks the investment is no longer worth it. And he says, I think we'll just leave. Eventually, after some enforcement by Dan, Barbara returns the payment, and Victor escapes the bedroom of horror, and we return with minimal losses. And all this to say, we did not take that freeage. So, these people's desire was so strong to get rid of the fridge that we were unable to move that they started to tear down their house for us. Imagine how desperate you must be in order to tear apart your house to give someone something. And imagine that this thing now holds intrinsic value, meaning that it doesn't need to be compared to anything else in order for us to see the value that it's worth. It has pure value. And unlike the fridge that the group of us unsuccessfully obtained that day, this couple, this fridge, which only held relative value, it still illustrates how we should behave when we know that other people need Jesus. There's a spiritual need for a savior on our campus for people who are broken. You know, we can't see a need, but we can feel a need. And this spiritual need... It's so big, and I think it begs the question from us, what are we willing to do in order to see other people find Jesus? These other people, they're broken, and they need a Savior, and I honestly don't think that they know it either. So, are we willing to tear apart our houses to get something much more valuable to a fridge to people who are in much more dire circumstances than Derek and Taylor? We need to be people who are willing to sacrifice parts of ourselves in order to see those around us know Jesus. So at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, we see that with some people's desperation to get their friends in front of Jesus, it actually changes a life. It reads, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. 
This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, I pray that your words would be spoken tonight. God, I pray that our present, your presence would be with us tonight. And God, that um, even greater than all this, Lord, that we would encounter your Holy Spirit. So God, we love you so much, and all of us we pray in your name. Amen. So with this story being at the beginning of Jesus' time of ministry, we observe that he has already attracted quite a large following. And, and it's likely when the passage says that there was such large numbers that there's no more room, that the entire house was packed full, and the courtyard of the house was also full. And houses in this time could likely squeeze anywhere from 50 to 70 people if they stood shoulder to shoulder. So in this house, Jesus and all these disciples are probably packed in like sardines. The men that we read about are also likely very desperate to get their friend in the presence of Jesus to get him healed. The way that the Greek reads in this story is that it suggests that the paralytic was a man in a terminal state. He's probably about to die. It can be also inferred that these disciples, or the guys who lowered the paralytic down, have seen Jesus perform miracles, or at the very least, heard that he has the power to. So they believed that he could heal a paralyzed man too. So what is the natural response to having a friend dying? Bring him to the only person who can heal him. Their faith was on display because of their confidence or perhaps desperation to get this man healed. And just like the friends of this story, our relationship with Jesus needs to be on display. When the friends heard of healings, I imagine that their first thought was, you know what, I have a friend who needs some healing. Maybe I should introduce him to this Jesus. It didn't matter to these friends that they didn't know the whole Bible or that they even questioned a few things about their faith in Jesus. All they knew was that their friend needed something, and the most loving thing for them to do was try to meet that need. The men wanted so badly for their friend to be healed that they dismantled the roof of a house to lower someone down to Jesus. I don't know about you, I've never thought about taking the roof off of a house in order to get someone healed. But their relationship was responsible for their friend meeting God. Before I came to college, I actually went to a tiny little itsy-bitsy church every Saturday night. And if I'm being honest with you guys, I really disliked being at church. It was the biggest drag of my week. But I went every week because that's the right thing to do, my mom would say. So by the time I got into my senior year of high school... I was tired of the religious obligation. All I wanted to do was cut loose. So I started to drink a little bit, and I wanted to sleep around. I wanted to say, go crazy, get stupid. (laughs) And when I was growing up, I was good friends with somebody named Derek Quimby. And my sister was good friends with his older brother, whose name is Daniel Quimby, who we heard from last week. Derek was the witness to many of my crazy and stupid moments at the end of my high school career, and I know that Daniel had a pretty good idea about what was going on in my life at the time as well, being that they were brothers. And so after my senior year was over, Daniel had moved back to Cedar Falls from Bible College in order to restart Chi Alpha at UNI. And being one of the only people that Daniel knew going into that year, he desperately wanted to get me into Chi Alpha. He wanted me to meet Jesus so badly that he came to my gross, sweaty, smelly dorm room before school started and insisted that I go to Chi Alpha for like three hours. And as you can imagine, I was far too scared to kick him out, 
I, you know, I'm this Iowa nice kid, and I never wanted to slam the door in his face, so reluctantly, after three hours of giving him the, I don't know, I agreed to go to the first one. And that night was when my life changed. The presence in that room was like nothing that I had ever experienced in that Chi Alpha service. But without Daniel's willingness to do something that might have been embarrassing as he sat in the queen-sized beanbag chair in my dorm room, I would have never had the chance to meet Jesus that night. And it's not like that one encounter with Daniel's relationship with Jesus had me going, whatever that guy has, I want it. Honestly, I implied, the thoughts in my head were like, bro, I don't care, get out. But sometimes stubborn love can be the best love to help someone find Jesus. And it's not always the case, but I think sometimes, or most of the time, the thing that you want to do is the thing that you know is best for the other person. And we don't have to read the whole Bible all the way through in order to introduce someone to Jesus. We just need to display our faith to them. Because after all, Mark 4, 21 and 22 through 22 says, He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. I believe that your faith is not private, it's just personal. It's always been meant to be shared with others, and the desperation that Daniel had with me and the men that they had with their paralytic friend should be the same desperation that we have with those who don't know Jesus on our campus. Daniel was willing to do something that made him uncomfortable in order for me to find Jesus. The men in the story were willing to tear a roof off of a house so that their friend could be healed. And hear me, I don't want to destroy other people's property, but I would be begging you to ask yourself the question, what do I need to do to help other people find Jesus? Such a good question. Wow. Glad you asked it. I've got a few ideas. You know, I think we could sit in the dining center with people that maybe we don't know. I think a lot of us eat there. Um, Or maybe talk to people, ask them if we can pray for them in the union. Or we could talk to people that we sit next to in class instead of making fun of the German teacher's accent of our humanities class and talk to them about Jesus. Personally, I don't have any experience in that specific scenario, but probably did that too many times. Those are just a few of the so many ways that we can have our faith on display. And there... Hear me, there isn't one perfect way to do this, but we know that we've won the objective if our conversation leads to Jesus. So what has Jesus done in your life specifically? Some of you have probably seen some some pretty crazy healings, or maybe you've had God speak to you. But I would venture to guess that most of us haven't seen something over the top and crazy like these, but you may have received a greater peace than you ever thought imaginable. And don't you think that there would be some people on our campus that would love to have a few moments with the presence of God if they could only see what you have? Your experiences in your life have probably shown you that Jesus' presence changes circumstance and perspective. I'll say it one more time. Jesus' presence changes circumstance and perspective. We'll break this down a little bit into two different parts. First of which being circumstance. Circumstance is something that we find ourselves in or something that happens to us. Very little is known about the paralytic man in our story to, the, to us as the readers of the story, but we know 
that something is ailing this man. There's something wrong with him. We don't know if he even wanted healing or if he understood that he needed it or basically anything else about his life. But we know one thing, and it's that when he got in the presence of Jesus, his whole life changed. I think many people today learn to cope with the things that they just, that are ailing them, whether it be unhealthy habits, lack of responsibility, fear, or even crippling addiction. And we're all able to lie to ourselves into believing that everything is okay when it definitely isn't. This is where the paralytic, paralytic's friends are vital. They were useful to him to point out that his life was definitely not going according to plan, as if he didn't need to just try to walk to see that. But there was something wrong, and they were able to point that out for him. Or maybe even more importantly, they were willing to try anything to help him. The important note that, it's important to note that we don't see them arguing with him or forcing him to take their perspective or advice. It's not his friends versus him, but rather it's a loving way to get him into the presence of Jesus. After I decided that I wanted to follow Jesus with my life in Chi Alpha, I actually barely went to services that first semester. Most Thursday nights, because that's when we did our service, my small group leader and Daniel would text me about halfway through service asking me if I was okay. And probably 90% of the time, I had some bogus excuse like, oh, I have too much homework to do tonight, or uh, I'm not feeling well, or I had something else going on. But most of the time, I was destroying campers in Call of Duty or building a life-size replica of the Death Star on Minecraft. So needless to say, I always had terrible excuses for why I was in that service, which meant that I wasn't allowing myself to get into the presence of Jesus. I was not hurting my small group leaders or Daniel by not going to service. I was limiting what Jesus could do in my life because I was not with him. Meanwhile, I was struggling with an addiction to masturbation. It's weird. It's awkward. Don't talk about it. No, I'm going to talk about it, bro. It's real. I had something in my life that I knew was not what God had the best for me, and I knew I couldn't beat it on my own. In every winter time, we hold a conference for, with all the other Chi Alphas in our region called Winter Conference. And, I, and that year, I went because Daniel have, had offered to pay for me. And at the conference, we always have really awesome worship and really good messages and some time to have some fun. But most importantly, we get to sit in the presence of God. One of the services we had, we were just sitting in this holy moment. Literally, I'm pretty sure it was like just the keys playing for like 30 minutes. And some of you would be like, oh, that sounds like such a drag. But like when you're in the presence of God, I think time is kind of relative. But anyway, so I was sitting there and I felt like God had asked me to confess this addiction to one of my friends. And so I leaned over to him. I was like, hey, man. I feel like God is telling me to tell you something. And I confessed that I'd been struggling with masturbation. And the craziest thing happened. He looked at me and he goes, no way. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really awkward to confess that for the first time. But there was such freedom in that confession for me and also for him. I felt this new kind of peace that I had never experienced in my life. And I don't think even today I could describe it in any kind of words other than the fact that I was in the presence of God in that moment. And for the rest of the conference, it was all incredible, and, like, worship was great, but 
I had felt this new sense of freedom in that moment of confession. And that night, because I'd encountered the presence of Jesus in acted in obedience, I was healed of this addiction, and I haven't stumbled since then. But I don't think this is how we overcome every addiction in our lives. But for some reason, God wanted to do something in my life at that point. And I know that God wants to do something in your life right now as well. The single best way that you can allow God to move in your life is to get into his presence. This means you should go to service when you're all peopled out for the week. It also means that you should go to small group, especially when you've had a bad day. Remember last week when Pastor Daniel shared a few spiritual disciplines with us, things like Bible reading, prayer, fasting, Sabbath? Those are all ways to get in the presence of God as well. Essentially, we need to get into the presence of Jesus when we need our circumstances to change. But what happens when you need a circumstance to change and it just doesn't? And we don't always want to settle for answers like God works in mysterious ways, but it is true he does. We won't always understand why God allows us to go through difficult trials. And I just want you to know, as we spend more time with Jesus, he grants us a greater perspective. So perspective is how we think about things, or the lens that we look through. When I was growing up, the only thing that I ever cared about, this guy. The only thing. And so I remember growing in my senior year government class of high school, I was arguing with a girl that I sat next to about how I just don't care about what other policies are made because if it doesn't affect me, it doesn't matter to me. And so when I met Jesus my freshman year of college, I started to think about other people's eternities. When I met Jesus, my perspective changed. Jesus changed my perspective so much that when I... I started to do things that were inconvenient or at times really uncomfortable for me. I would go to the union and awkwardly ask people if I could pray for them. I'd start volunteering at church on Sundays or at Chi Alpha on Tuesdays so that other people could encounter the presence of God like I had before. And I started to raise money to go on a mission trip in Atlanta where I slept on a hardwood floor just so I could have my heart softened for people who don't know Jesus. Which, by the way, We're about to announce some mission trips at Chi Alpha. It's going to be really awesome. You should be here in like two weeks. There's this thing called Missions Week. Try it out. Anyway, go on a mission trip. Go on a mission trip. But even as of now, I'm not naturally the most selfless person. I still think about myself way more than I should, and I act selfishly on the regular. However, my perspective changed when I met Jesus That led me to love other people so much that I could not ignore the call that he had in my life to show other people his love as well. And the story we read tonight isn't just a story, but it's also an instruction manual. Love people so much that you will do anything to get them with Jesus. While I'm not perfect at helping other people find Jesus, I try really hard to get them into a more intimate place with God. My fear isn't gone. I'm a scared little boy on the inside, I'll be honest with you guys. I'm still insecure about my ability to make friends, and I'm really awkward. You should try talking to me. I know what I am. But it was the perspective change that God loves me and wants to use me to show other people his love as well that motivates me to make friends and show other people who Jesus is. The love of God motivated me 
to become like the men who lowered the paralytic down from the roof just so one more person could know Jesus. Not only can the presence of Jesus change how we think of him as believers, but also it can change how people who don't know him think about him as well. I think that one of the most frequent obstacles to us as believers in allowing our faith to be on display is fear. In verses 6 through 12, we can see how Jesus' presence literally changes the perspective of those who were opposing him. It says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew this in his spirit, that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I, know, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Oftentimes I think that we can see people who are farthest from the presence of Jesus are the ones who are closest to putting their faith in him. The teachers of the law in this passage were the religious elite of the day, and they knew that they were elite. They knew that God alone had the authority to forgive sins, but what they didn't realize was they were standing in the presence of God in the flesh. The teachers of the law were people who were probably intimidating to the average person because they were intelligent and powerful, and in the right circumstances, could rally enough support to legally get someone killed. And none of these frightened Jesus. Why? Because he's Jesus. He is God. He didn't have to fear what they could do to him because ultimately it didn't matter what they could do. Jesus stood with confidence in front of them knowing that it just took one moment of something miraculous in order for them to start praising God and believing It wasn't just the right words for the moment, but it was an experience with his presence that had them believing. He literally changed their perspective by doing the thing that we cannot do on our own. This should be something that motivates us towards boldness. If Jesus didn't have to worry about what scary people could do to him, why should we worry about what our friends think when we display our faith to them? John 14, 12 through 14 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, And they will do even greater greater things than this, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. See, we are not the ones who forgive the sins of our friends, or even the ones who perform the healing. But Jesus instructs, instructs us to ask for greater things than we ever saw him do, so that the Father's name may be glorified. Our only job, our only job as Christians is to live life with Jesus, live it with confidence, and invite other people into this life as well. It's simple. The one job is obedience. Although you and I are not God, we are his representatives, and he has promised us power in that position. And there are people on this campus that may have thought their way past God. They need Jesus just as much as the teachers of the law in this story needed him. 
And all we have to do is stand with confidence, knowing that the presence of Jesus has the power to change circumstance and perspective. Which leads us to tonight's main idea. We need to do whatever it takes in order to get others in the presence of Jesus. We must. If you are a believer, I think God wants to do something in you to bring the message across the campus. Remember that you only have a few years on this campus with people your age that will be in a similar season of life that just freshly got out of their parents' house with a constantly changing dynamic around them. You have such an opportunity in order to bring the gospel to this campus, so please don't let this time pass you by without taking advantage of it. I believe that God is willing to do something supernatural. What do you need God to do in your life? Do you need your circumstances changed? What is it that you might need healing from? Does my story sound similar to something you may be struggling with right now tonight? And whatever you're struggling with, could you put yourself in the place of a paralytic? I don't know if you need a move of God in your life, but what I do know is that God has something to offer you right now. Or maybe you need your perspective changed. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe you're struggling with something with your mental health right now. Maybe there's a sin issue in your heart that you've been hiding and you think maybe it'd just be easier and less embarrassing if I don't confess it to someone. Do you think that Jesus could be saying, which is easier to deal with this on your own and struggle or maybe be healed? Don't struggle with this addiction to pornography or self-harm any longer. Is there a chance that Jesus already knows what you're dealing with and wants to help you? Whatever he wants to do in your life, I think he's asking you to live your faith in boldness no matter how scary it might be for you. Maybe for those of you in this room that have a weak point in your flesh, God wants to offer you boldness and peace. This resembles tearing the roof off the house for those who don't know Jesus so that his Father's name may be glorified. I know how intimidating it is, the idea to share your faith with other people. But if the presence of Jesus has changed your life forever, then he wants you to invite other people into the same relationship that he has with them as well. So would you stand with me? Did you know that there are people on our campus that could stand to be in the presence of Jesus right now? If we are a group of people who have experienced the presence of Jesus and we love other people the way that Jesus instructs us to, then we need to be desperate to invite everyone we know into this relationship. We have a unique opportunity while we're on this campus to live life in close proximity with people who don't know Jesus who need a savior. And I don't think that Jesus is just this historical figure that, you know, made a little ruckus, did something a little crazy. I think Jesus is the son of God who deeply and lovingly cares for each one of you in this room. 
I think Jesus is more than maybe something that we just imagine or somebody who's just done one small significant act in time of history, but he's alive and present today. You know, Jesus loves you. He can heal you of the thing that you need healing from tonight. He has the power, just like he healed the paralytic that day. Or maybe you need to be somebody tonight who lives out the gospel in such an amazing way that you help someone else come to faith in Jesus just by the way that you live your life. And whatever it is, Jesus wants a relationship with you and all the other people on this campus. So I'm going to give two ways to respond tonight. With every head bowed and eyes eye closed, I'm going to ask that those of you who don't know Jesus tonight, if you want to put your faith in such a Savior, would you raise your hand on the count of three? One, two, three. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to love you, God to spend our life with you in such a way that we can get to know those around us as well. But Lord, I pray that you would help these new family members just be emboldened with your, with your presence, Lord Jesus. Would you do something huge in their life, God? Thank you, Lord. I'm actually going to ask you to open your eyes now. The second way to respond tonight is a way of accountability. See, there are four friends in this story that help lower their friend down into this house with Jesus. They needed each other in order to carry this man. You're not meant to do this walk of Christianity alone. You need some friends. And so tonight, I want to give everyone the opportunity that wants to be like these friends to see each other raise your hands. Because these are the people, this is the community that we're going to lower, we're going to help lower other people into the house with. And so if you want to be like the friends in this story, would you just raise your hand tonight? Go ahead, look around. These people, these people are the ones that will hold you accountable to do it, but also the ones that will help you when you're lacking any form of strength. They're here for you as well. So Lord, we thank you for all of our friends that want to live out life with you and to live a way that would show other people the faith that they have, God. Jesus, we're so thankful to have a community around us that wants to show other people who you are. Jesus, would you just empower us to do everything that you've called us to do. So Lord, we thank you so much. Amen.